San Diego Seals fans, fans around the world, lacrosse fans, sports fans, welcome back to the TFL podcast. I got a really super cool special edition podcast, leadership group of the San Diego Seals and a, and a bunch of people that everybody will recognize with a really cool conversation about the last dance. Uh, Michael Jordan was iconic and is iconic in the world of sports and affected probably all of the players that, that are sitting with us today, uh, crafted their their uh, uh, formative years as they started to figure out uh, who sports and what athletes were, except for maybe some of the Canadian guys that, well, you're all Canadian and we don't have Wayne Gretzky. So we'll talk about Michael Jordan, but at the end of the day, we're going to talk about the last dance and that just ended uh, episode 10 last Sunday. Um, I want to introduce everybody uh, uh, here with us is, is our, our general manager and head coach, Patrick Merrill. How are you? Brody Merrill, captain of the Seals, and uh, Zach Greer, who uh, joins us from his illustrious home in Dallas, Texas, uh, thus the star, um, and Kyle Buchanan, who's wearing a San Diego Padres hat appropriately, but not in San Diego right now, and then from, uh, from his wonderful perch atop Little Italy, uh, we have our friend Cam Holding, so welcome to the show, boys. How's it going, TFL? I, uh, I thought for this conversation it was important to have a referee, so I'm going to invite in our good friend, Mike Grace, uh, who is, is going to play referee and moderator for our call, uh, because I just didn't think with this particular group and the animosity that you guys all share for one, one another that uh, – I'm kidding, there's no animosity, but in this conversation I thought it would be super cool to have somebody moderate for us and uh, – and hopefully guide us through a conversation about a really cool topic. So Mike, uh, Mike Grace has joined us uh, from La Mesa and uh, will be kind of the moderator extraordinaire for our process. So everybody, welcome to the TFL podcast, special edition, The Last Dance. Thank you, Steve. And obviously, I'm here to make sure that you can talk as much as possible and uh, not have to pay attention to the clock and things like that. That's why I started a podcast, so I could keep talking. I think we got to see a really unique behind-the-scenes look at a very guarded athlete, especially in the final year of his career, a championship season. Um, I'm curious what many of you found as maybe the most surprising or most memorable part of the, a 10-hour, 10 10-part 10 series. Uh, Patrick, maybe we can start with you. What did you find maybe most surprising or, or most memorable about The Last Dance? Um, I guess surprising would be um, just kind of how uh, the people around Michael, um, you know, like who he was close with and who he wasn't and, and how his teammates perceived him throughout the course of, uh, of time. And then, uh, you know, I, I found the whole documentary really compelling and, uh, and, and interesting in a lot of ways. But uh, for me, I think the most uh, interesting part was just how you know uh, how how smart he was in terms of you know managing himself um, and the evolution of kind of himself as an athlete, but also uh, the ev the evolution of his brand. I thought was was really interesting, um, and I was a big fan back in the day. Of Michael, but I, I didn't know kind of, uh, I didn't remember a lot of that. So 
Uh, I thought that all of that stuff combined was pretty cool. I, I found I found when they dug deeper into like his teammates and their stories, I found that uh, I think just as interesting or even more interesting. I actually wish they would have spent a little bit more time on them. Zach, what about you? What did you see that kind of stood out to you? Yeah, what what, uh, what was surprising to me, and also maybe one of my favorite parts was the uh, the ability for him and and other guys as well, Rodman and them to uh, to be so good at what they do and be able to flip the switch to to kind of turn it on at any moment. You know, where he's he's golfing the day before, the day of games at times, and you know Rodman's taken off to go and and you know do WWE, and, and then they come back and, and are the best players in the world without even you know questioning it uh, so that ability to to turn it on when it needs to be on and and you know find ways to uh to create motivation and even fabricate it at times and some of that stuff was just just really impressive and i think i've heard stories of it but obviously i was pretty young when they were going through it um but you know just that piece of it smoking cigars and and, and all of that and, and still being the you know by far and away the, the greatest player in the world and, and potentially the, the history of the sport um meanwhile still you know spending nights gambling at the casino and then rolling back in the next morning stuff like that has uh, caught me off guard a little bit what was uh, fun to hear about the, the smartest thing that he probably did the whole time was he he held back his right to edit the final edit and so no matter what he was going to look like a rock star and and uh you know he was going to come out on top he, he didn't there weren't a lot of questions that he didn't have answers to surprisingly right <laughs> I think that's a great point. Like that's one of the things that are trickling out now is like other players, you know, uh, you know, Pippen might not have been happy with the final edit and um, you know, a few of the other guys like, Hey, that's not exactly how it, it went down, you know? So hearing some of that and uh, not knowing exactly what's, what's completely truth and what's not is, uh, is an interesting. Thing. When the filmmaker hands you the tablet so you can watch what Isaiah Thomas says, you know, and you can respond to what other people said about you you know there's a bit of a slant on this whole thing that you know I, look i thought it was compelling but certainly there's a slant well horace grant was pretty upset i'm not sure if anyone saw his comments recently but he's pretty upset by and then i actually heard another interview from uh, sam smith the guy that wrote that book on him uh, and those those days and those teams or that team that season yeah, it's, you know, the documentary was great, but it was kind of a story based on a true story. So I found that interesting as well, that comment. But Horace Grant, I think, is calling him out. I think he wants to address it. Yeah, he, he mentioned that the, some of the things that supposedly happened wouldn't have happened uh, with the, the way he handled different things. Kyle, what about you? What, what stood out to you? Well, I mean, I think the boys all hit on a, a few things that I would have mentioned as well. But the one thing that kind of I, I kept thinking about throughout the whole thing is what would that have looked like for Michael if he had different teammates or maybe a couple different personalities in that group? Obviously, Rodman was a wild card and Michael kind of did what he did as well. But, you know, either he had really good teammates or they all just kind of did their own thing and came together when it counted. So I kind of kept looking at that like, you know, Michael's having six cigars a day, going golfing. Dennis Rodman's out going to Vegas. Scotty's just going with the flow, being quiet. You know, just kind of the makeup of that team and for them all to come together and be able to turn it on. I don't know that I've seen many teams in history like that, be able to just kind of flip a switch or, um, you know, maybe take each other for what they are. 
you know, usually they'd have something to say or whatever. So I thought that was really interesting. I'm like, well, what does that look like with one other guy different or Steve Kerr is not able to push Michael in practice and take a sucker punch. You know, what does that whole dynamic look like? Does it make it better? I don't know. So I kind of kept thinking about that in teams I played on as we went through. So I thought that was pretty surprising. And Cam, you're obviously one of the younger guys in the group. So you probably had a different perspective watching this as a, as a younger kid when Michael was in his heyday. What did you take away from this that maybe you didn't see when, because you were young? Yeah, it was uh, an incredible documentary. I was addicted from uh, the first episode. Um, I thought it was really cool to see. First off, I didn't know that Michael Jordan's dad was murdered. Um, so for me, I learned that. And then to see how he kind of grasped onto the, his security guard, Gus, and kind of treated him like a father figure and then also showed some compassion. And, and once they won, um, I forget what championship it was, but he grabbed the game ball and gave it to Gus. And, and you know, you kind of saw a little different side of him because up until that point, they portrayed him as pushing his teammates and chirping guys and trash talking people. And, and to show that side of him, I thought was pretty cool. Um, the other thing that really surprised me was, uh, was Coach Jackson and how he, was, he took the guys that were on his team and he coached them for the people that they were, not necessarily the way he wanted them to be. Um, and you saw that when I think Rodman like, just left. After a game, he jumps on a plane, he goes to Vegas, he comes back, or he went to Phil Jackson and says, hey, like, I need a vacation. I got to go to Vegas. And his response is okay. Like, he recognizes what his guys needed to be at their peak performance um, and gave them the ability to succeed based on what uh, they requested. So that, I thought that was really cool um, how they kind of interacted with their head coach. And Brody, uh, obviously Michael was, you know, the transformative athlete uh, when you and I were in our formative years, you know, what did you take away from this and what do you remember uh, being impressionable when he was uh, at the top? Yeah, I would say that I was – it was funny kind of looking back on some of the teams that he was playing against at different times. And I was always um, – in hindsight – A big Clyde Drexler fan. Yeah, I was a Clyde Drexler fan. I, was, I always kind of cheered against Michael. Like, and not because I hated I, – I didn't – he was almost a little bit boring to me at the time. Like, um, you had this, like, kind of perfect image. And um, – I'm Patrick uh, was a Jordan fan, so I always found myself either cheering for the Pistons or the, you know, I became a, a Blazers fan, and and uh, and even even Utah. Like I remember, you know, it, it almost got boring to me him him winning all the time, and and uh, but now just like seeing behind the curtain, seeing the edge that he had, and um, you know, all that went into winning. Um, you know, just it just unbelievable how you know. Um, how hard that is to do and, and how he was able to pull that off. And I also really like appreciated all like the, uh, the role guys. And I think there was, they all seemed like, um, you know, to kind of fit uh, together. And, and um, so it was a pretty amazing thing to see how it all aligned. So I definitely I ended up um, kind of liking Mike and appreciating him a little bit and, and seeing him in a much different light than I remember uh, viewing him growing up. I'd like to be bored like that. <laughs> I would love to be boring like that. Just keep winning yeah, rings. Well, you remember that time. Man. He was he, he was on Oprah. He was, you know, he always had that. He always came off really well in interviews. He was, uh, he always kind of heard rumblings of the gambling and, and that kind of stuff. But he, he was um, so charismatic. And um, but this was just, you know, seeing – he was just much different than I thought he was. You know, he how, just, much do you look at, 
how much do you look at Jerry Krause? And, and look, one of the things that struck me in the whole thing was, was he put people around him. You talk about teammates, right? And Bucky, you talked about that with teammates. How many guys you, he put around them that were somewhat interchangeable that played a role, right? Paxton plays the role. Kerr plays the role, right? You know, Kukoc comes in, plays the role. Longley was playing it before that. It was like, these are role guys, but like, I think we all know in the, in the history of our, our winning and, and for those of us that, you know, have, have spent some time in this league and, and other situations where you win, the role guys put you over the top. And, you know, the Gary Gates of the world, God bless him, and, and was a superstar, and we could never have won without him. But without Dallas Elliott, without, you know, in, in my context of my situation, and Zach, you can talk about Saskatchewan and, and that situation where winning became boring for them. But, you know, the, the construct of Jerry Krause as the GM, who ultimately is an asshole and, you know, is portrayed like an asshole and, you know, probably looks bad in the whole context of the thing. But at the end of the day, GM's got to get some credit for putting a bunch of role players around the superstars. I think, I think also to that point about role players, I think they were perfect fits on the floor, but I also think to Bucky's point, they also had personalities that meshed well with, with Michael. Michael was a bit of a bully, and I found like, kind of like you know, he, he surrounded, no, but he surrounded, he, he, he surrounded him with guys that he knew he could kind of work with on and off the floor, and, 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 you know, I think Scotty was a perfect number two because, you know, maybe he was a bit scared of, of, of Michael, but he was also – he was okay in that role. He's more comfortable in that role than he was as, as a number one guy. But I, I, 100% I think he, he, he Kraus deserves a lot of credit because also they would lose role guys and then they would re- replace them with guys that were the same or better, which was really do- tough to do and I think sustained their run. We saw uh, Pippin at the end, right? I think it was the last episode, um, you know, acknowledge that, right? And, and for the guy who arguably hated Krauss the most or, or demonstrated that throughout the documentary to come out and say like, hey, man, like Jerry deserves a ton of credit here. I think that spoke volumes about, you know, everybody knew it. They might not have liked the guy, but played a, a critical factor in them winning, you know, six championships. But he still can't be recognized as a, as a great GM just because of how he finished it, though. I mean, I, th- I think you can recognize that he, you know, like, again, I think you respect what he did, but I think it's, it kind of, it got tainted, right? And, and you know, without Michael, sure. what happened? Yeah. I, I also think the coaching change, though, is a good example of, of how smart he was, right? So I can't even remember the coach's name prior to, to Phil, but uh, the time where they were starting to kind of, you know, get close, you know, they made, they were still a pretty good team and then they decided to make that change and, and Phil was the right guy at the right time. So I think that's a pretty smart move as well. And, and also, you know, I think he saw the end coming. I thought, I think Krause saw the end coming and, and, and he was trying to get ahead of it. So, um, you know, but then obviously Phil wasn't agreeable to that or he, I guess Phil wasn't a part of that. Uh, and Michael wasn't agreeable to it, and obviously Scotty wasn't, so it kind of blew up his plan. But I still think he had he had a, he had another plan to extend that run. 
Well, just Patty, the beauty up. of Hollywood, we'll never know the backstories on a lot of the reasons why it actually shut down. And, you know, where Jerry Reinstorf was as an owner, you know, and the concert. And sure. he comments at the end of the, you know, the last episode talking about, well, we couldn't have kept them. We couldn't afford to keep them all. And then, you know, in retrospect, right, in an after or an epilogue to the whole thing, they kind of sit back and go, well, maybe everybody would have signed a one-year deal and come back and played. I don't know if Scottie Pippen was really interested in the last part of his career is signing another deal that might have, you know, whether it kept them together to win or not. Like, let's face it, playing in the NBA, you've got to get paid. That's your job. I mean, you only have a certain amount of time to get, you know, to, to craft your livelihood. I don't know, though, to get seven championships. And my biggest gripe with that is he told them at the beginning of the season. So to me, it was pretty remarkable that they kind of they, they stuck it out and they went and won that championship hating the fact that their GM was knowingly going to tear them apart. Um, I don't know. I can't speak on this, but like if I'm, if I have the opportunity to compete for a seventh championship, I'll take a pay cut any day of the week to, to stick with that group and have that core ride that out. Um, especially knowing that it's never been done and, you know, probably won't be in the capacity they did for a while. The essence of the NLL versus the NBA. <laughs> no, I was going to say maybe Kraus is, is the real genius and he actually came out at the beginning of the year to, to create that motivation for them because he, he didn't think they were going to get it done otherwise and, you know, they needed a villain and, and he became it. But uh, that'd be next level stuff if that was actually the case. <laughs> well, I mean, I do believe maybe it, maybe it had a lot to do with the fact that he only thought they had one, one, one last year in them and, you know. You know, well, he was trying to motivate them, piss them off. Let me be the first to say, Patrick, you're out of a job at the end of next year if you don't win. All right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Cali BBQ is proud to be an official sponsor of your San Diego Seals. Buy our slow-smoked barbecue at any Seals home game or online anytime at www.calibbq.com. Dot media. Let's shift gears a little bit. And I'm kidding. I it was a joke. And everyone's getting traded. <laughs> <laughs> I'm protecting you as much as I can, Patty. Uh, I think Michael, for the most part, is probably known for his competitiveness. And I, I don't think many people would argue a more competitive guy in the world of sports. Um, I'd love to kind of hear each one of the your experiences of who you played with or possibly against that you've, you found the most competitive, whether it was will to win or hated to lose. And I, I think we should start with Steve on this one. And then maybe we can got to go chronologically because you can start having overlap with the players that uh, maybe you played with. So, you know, Steve to Patty to Brody and then down the line. Yeah. I mean, two comments, one about a player that wasn't in the national uh, basketball association and not in the NLL, but like when you look at Wayne Gretzky's career and a guy that won a ton, um, you could probably argue that Wayne did it in a much different way. And maybe that's because we're all Canadian that we see it from the perspective of, he probably said sorry a lot and he probably said thank you a lot uh, in the process. Whereas Michael had a different approach and probably came from a different background and culture in the sports. Um, I do think that I, you know, had the great opportunity to play with, with obviously I put Gary Gate up at the highest level of the game and, and watched John Grant as a general manager. Uh, and I know you guys have all had the opportunity to play with Junior at, at sometimes in your career. But 
look, Gary Gate was a fiery competitor. The comparison of Gary Gate to Michael Jordan, in my opinion, was their ability to have the, the memory of a gnat. Like, literally, they forgot very quickly about a failure and moved on to a success and replicated that success over and over again. When Michael was, you know, struggling to, to in, I think, in game six and, and, and was hitting shot after shot on the front of the rim, you know, because he was short, he, he stowed that pretty quickly and, and mustered up the ability to hit a great shot at the end. Um, you know, ultimately, that's the one thing I always admired about Gary is he, is he, he had a very short memory. So I'll, I'll stop at that and, and let you guys kind of go from there. Patrick, who, who kind of stands out to you on that competitive scale? Um, there's a few guys I, I, you know, I was, I was lucky enough to play on the, on the rock when, when we were, I was, they were kind of in the middle of a dynasty when I got drafted there. And, um, and, you know, so there were so many different, it kind of actually reminded me a little bit about, uh, like of that Bulls team in, in, in some ways, um, all the different kind of characters and all the different type of roles guys played to, to make the team successful. And, championship teams but but uh, really the first guy that kind of came to my mind was 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 Colin Doyle he was kind of that guy that uh, um, in terms of competitiveness you know him and him and probably shooter are probably the two most competitive guys I've ever played with and that that just didn't that didn't that wasn't just on the floor during games that was you know there were fights in practice there were um, you know, there were, there were fights during card games at the back of the bus, you know, if they lost and, and things like that. It actually brought back a lot of cool memories, you know, watching, you know, how they interacted with each other, you know, in the NBA locker rooms back in those days. I mean, lacrosse was like that, but like way, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, guys were, you know, smoking cigarettes between periods and things like that back in the day. But, um, but, but I think in terms of pure competitiveness, um, yeah, I, 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 you know, Josh Sanderson and, and, and Colin Doyle were uh, at the top of the list for me. And, and when the chips were down, you know, they just had that presence about them, kind of similar to the way Steve was talking about Gary Gate, where you, they just have this confidence in the moment, right, where they wanted the ball in their stick and, it just didn't really matter how they were just going to get it done. And they always did, especially in those dramatic moments. How about you, Brody? Uh, yeah, the more, I guess, um, more recently, a guy that I've uh, kind of been on the wrong side of, of um, you know, just some playoff runs in the NLL is, uh, is Cody Jamison. He just kind of has that fire that, that kind of it factor and uh, had a chance to play with him one summer um, in six nations. And we were down three, nothing in a series and he hadn't played. He had torn his ACL. Um, and he ended up coming back. I remember showing up to the locker room and uh, I had just got there. He, it was the team had already been out at warm up for warm up, and he's in there fidgeting around with it with a knee brace. I'm like, what are you doing? Man? Like, and he's like, I'm, I'm going, I'm going tonight. And uh, we ended up coming back from, from uh, 
three three zip uh, defi deficit and and went on to win a man cup. It was the best, probably like man cups a little bit under the radar, but it was one of the best kind of individual performances and and just kind of seeing again that fire, that competitive, that win it win at all costs, that that kind of alpha type of um, you know mindset um, and definitely and that you know and that clutch. You know, and again, I think back to some times where it's just like, man, in those big moments, he would he would come through a lot. Um, so he, he was the first person that came to mind. How about you, Zach? Who stands out in your career? Yeah, I think from a, a competitive standpoint on the floor in the lacrosse space, I'll, I'll tip my cap to the two brothers on this call. Um, and I learned from a, a young age playing against them primarily that – uh, you know, there's no friends when you're, when you're on the floor. And, uh, and that's part of, I think what has helped me flip the switch a little bit when you get out there is, you know, it's, lacrosse is a small community. And at some point or another, you've played with or know somebody who's played with and uh, nobody's making millions of dollars, right? So it, it is a pretty friendly sport um, for the most part when you get to the professional level. Uh, and I had some, you know, experience playing in the MLL before I started playing in the NLL, which I think, as we know, is, is a little bit uh, different from a competitive level standpoint as well. But, um, you know, just in playing against these guys, whether it be at the NLL level or, you know, even uh, – Canadian national team tryouts and stuff like that. Like you get on the floor and it, it doesn't matter who's on the other side, how long you've known them, whatever it is, you're going to do whatever it is, uh, you know, you got to do to win the game and, and, uh, and play your role and, and, you know, help your team be successful. So I took a lot from them at a, at a young age and learning to, to try to block that out, block everything else out and focus on what I need to do to make my team successful. Um, you know, help us win. I think these two guys are, are two of the guys, maybe the best to, to ever do that. Uh, and, it, and it's, and it's actually really fun to watch when you're on the same side, um, you know, because of that doesn't matter who it is over there, longtime friends and see these guys kind of go after them and, and, you know, support their teammates and everything that goes along with it. So I'll, uh, I'll give the nod to these two. What do you got, Kyle? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think when I'm, when I'm looking at competitive, I've, uh, I have to go to, to one guy I've won a couple with and actually been on the other end of it as well as uh, Sean Evans. Um, you know, I think he honestly looking at that documentary, there's some few things that kind of reminded me of Evie and um, you know, he's honestly a prick sometimes to a lot of guys and um, I'm not sure if it's to pull the best out of them, uh, but it often does. Um, just kind of how he approaches the game and uh, you know when the game's on the line he wants the ball on his stick and wants to make a play and and do that kind of thing and, and I remember early in my career in junior in the Minto Cup he you know sold a call late in the game and and he'd do anything to win whether that was diving whether that was cheap shotting the guy whether that was scoring the goal it didn't really matter but if he won that's all it really mattered so um, when I'm looking at competitiveness uh, he's one I think of similar to what uh, I forget who it was saying it earlier maybe uh, you Patty uh, there's a lot of card games on the bus where I thought maybe he had, uh, you know, aces up his sleeves and things like that. So he didn't give a shit what it was, but uh, he wanted to win and, and still does to this day. So um, I've been lucky to be on the, the right side of that a few times and uh, learned a lot from that. So he's someone who, who reminded me of that same competitiveness. Cam? Yeah, for me, um, Steve kind of touched on one person, but John Grant Jr. Um, from a competitive standpoint, that guy – Reminded me so much like uh, Michael Jordan. He wants the ball and stick. If there's one more shot to be had, Junior wants that shot. So uh, he's kind of the one guy that came to mind. And then I think as as this one gets older, 
you know, Austin Stotts, that guy wears his heart on his sleeve and is one of the most competitive people uh, or per person that I've ever played with. Um, and we've only been around him for two years, but as he continues to get older, he's going to, he's going to be that guy everybody knows about. And, and from a competitive standpoint, he's going to accomplish so much more of his career. Um, I was thinking that Cam, I was actually going to ask that question to the rest of the guys. If they thought they saw in 83, the early, early stages of, of last dance, right. Was the discussion Right. I think in the in in the context of the whole ten episodes, right, ten hours, you saw the maturation of a player from the time he, he graduates college to where he became after the sixth championship. And then ultimately when he gets interviewed twenty years later, you know, do you guys see Austin Stotts as that young kid that, that came to the Bulls in the first stage? So Cam, I, I wanted to I wanted to ask that question of you and then the other guys. Yeah, the day that I knew that was or accurate was our first win at home, and he grabs his jersey, and there's a great picture of him flashing our logo to, to the fans, and you could just see the emotion on his face. Um, and I think that that's contagious, and, and that you know, the rest of the team rallies and, and builds on that. And um, I think you're exactly right that as he gets older, that's just going to continue to get better. And I literally I watched the first episode, and I went and texted him immediately. And I, I made sure to remind them that like this is going to be you and you're kind of on that path and keep going because uh, it's, it's a special kind of talent. Patrick, you've known him since he was uh, very young. What, what have you seen in him and, and, and where he was when you started with him and where he is now on that competitive level? Um, you know, I completely agree with what's been said. I think Cam and I were texting about this the other night when we were talking about this, uh, you know, watching the documentary. And, you know, he was definitely one of the first people I thought of, too. Um, I think he's a bit of a throwback, to be honest. I think he's, he's all those things that you describe. And he's just, um, you know, all great players kind of. And, I, you know, I hope he doesn't watch this, but all, all great players <laughs> – all great players have, you know, it's hard to put your finger on it. It's kind of that it factor, and it's called that it factor for a reason, and he's certainly got it. He's got that swagger. And one of the things that I first noticed about him um, that uh, I really admired about him, because I, I never really knew him. I knew his older brother um, a bit uh, from his time at the Hill when he was younger, and, and I heard a lot about Austin before the first time I actually stepped on the floor with him. But right away um i i just was drawn to him because uh like it didn't really matter it was the first day of training camp there were a lot of guys that were like veteran players that were missing he was clearly the best player on the floor um but he literally it wasn't enough for him like there were some rookies there trying out for the team that had no chance to make it and and he literally wanted to prove to every single person on that floor that not only was he the best player out there, but he was going to embarrass you in the process. And, uh, and, and it was every drill, like every single moment that he was on that floor, he gave it everything that he had in a competitive way. And I, I, think, uh, I think that there's a reason why, you know, championships follow guys like that around. Um, and, um, and so he's certainly got it. He's got some refining to do, much like Mike, Michael Jordan, you know, had to go through during the early years of his career. Um, but, you know, uh, yeah, definitely his name comes to mind when you watch that documentary.
Well, the parallel is a little eerie. He's drafted as high as he was. He gets hurt, you know, kind of early in his career, you know, and then and then the anticipation of him coming back after winning Rookie of the Year, you know, and and Jordan wins Rookie of the Year. Like it's it's a little. I hadn't thought of it before this conversation, but it's a little eerie. You know, the one thing I think about Audi when I'm looking at that too is just like. You know, you picture someone in his position and you're like, you know, as older guys in the team, we're like, oh, you know, how do we you make this guy a leader? And the best part about it is that you don't, you don't got to change him. Like, he is who he is. Michael is who he is. He doesn't give a shit who you are or what you do. He wants to win. And that's the end of it. doesn't matter who you are. If you're on his team, he wants to win and he's going to push you. He's going to push you in practice. He's going to push you and shoot around. It doesn't matter. He'll do shoot a diving goal and shoot around. Like, you know. It's just that level of intensity is just brought to to a whole nother height, and uh, that's what's I think super parallel to to MJ, and um, you know he just leads in his own way, completely different than anybody else. I, I think to that point it is uh, I think in a leader, a lot of guys have different ways to project this, but um, you know is that authenticity, right? You know that comfort in his own skin. Uh, you know I think. I think the, the big fellow on this call has that as well, just in a different form, um, you know, where, where it comes out, where it's that, you know, he's not trying to be someone that he isn't, to your point, right? He's going to show up and give it everything that he has no matter what. Um, uh, and he doesn't try to be a, a different type of leader or a different type of player or like somebody else. He just tries to be the best version of himself. And I think that's, that's a really important quality in a leader. Brody, you captained Austin in his rookie year. What did you see right away, and what have you seen in the growth so far? Um, he, he, you know, sets the temperature when he, he steps in the locker room. Um, you know, and I, I just, uh, yeah, well, he's, I agree with everyone, everything that's been said. I think he just has a, this, this energy about him and, uh, you know, is competitive. Uh, you know, like people talk about competitiveness, and I think that, it doesn't matter, like, you know, uh, Bucky brought up shoot around and just watching him on the floor and watching him shoot and watching him uh, go through drills. It's, it's, um, there's a, there's a fire, you know, in him. And, um, and he's just, he's just, uh, I find him, you know, injecting energy and life just being around him. And, um, you know, I think I've really fed off of him as an older guy and, and, um, you know, just love and appreciate being around him. And you can just see that. I got I'm sure you guys know, like felt it um, in Vegas with his first game back. We weren't sure whether or not he's going to play. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, you know, man, he was so excited. And he can't, like, there was no way we were losing that game that night, man, just because it, and he was a catalyst to that. And I think he's, he's destined for some great things. So I, I'm, I'm excited. We certainly can't. We certainly can't let him watch this. And, and Mike, we may have to edit out the entire segment. That you know. Anyway, not I only guess, the goals you just set for the kid, you know. <laughs> no, the thing is, he knows it. He knows it, right? And I think that's what's cool about him is that he he knows it. And he's um, again, is he authentic? Hey, I want to ask, ask a quick question, and and. I thought there was a glaring omission in the whole Last Dance um, documentary. And, and I know every one of you guys 
is very, you know, family is super important to all you guys. And your wives are a huge part of your life. And they, you know, whether they're dictating what your thought process is uh, or telling you what to think or whether they're simply, you know, uh, the, the standard by which, you know, you measure yourself uh, as a human being and, and th they're the better part of all of us. I, I know you guys, I know your wives pretty well, but ultimately, did it seem like a glaring omission in that entire documentary that there was only one mention in 10 hours of his wife? And, and I, like, to me, if they did a documentary about my career, whether it was good or bad, regardless, you know, there had to be some mention of the, of the woman that was kind of standing behind me, pushing me to be, you know, the person that I was throughout the process. I, was that an omission to you guys that, that seemed odd? It's funny you say that because as soon as that documentary ended, I was just set up. I was like, wow, that was amazing. And the first thing my wife said to me was, they didn't say anything about his family. And I was like, that's not the point. Well, they so, showed his kids, but they didn't show his wife. Like there's one. Yeah, not his. They, got, right. Gus, they, they didn't they show didn't anything. Say, do you want to call your wife? Right. Yeah. The more I thought about it, I was like, yeah, you know what? I guess, I guess they didn't. They didn't show a ton of his kids or, or the behind the scenes family life. So um, definitely something interesting. Like, it's almost like he didn't have a home that he was only in hotels and living on the road, right? It was like, yeah. and then you see his kids in the last episode, and you actually see a pretty cool glimpse, I think, into that, right? They're like, you know, I, gotta, I had to Google who my dad was and this and that, and kind of some cool things come out about him that are like, oh, it'd be interesting to hear a little bit more about what that looked like at home um, and how he was able, I think, again, to turn it on and off and, and separate those things. But it is, it is strange, and I wonder if that's an omission by – MJ or whoever had some some say in that it, it makes you think but I thought about that myself I think you gotta you gotta expect that somebody on that level who is that committed and that focused on a singular goal has a much different relationship with their wife and family than than maybe we do is making that much money is traveling the world as the most famous person in the in the world at the time you know um, you look at the Tiger Woods stuff right like these guys are are very different and their mind is in a different place a lot of the time. So I would expect that there might be a reason why, <laughs> why uh, the wife wasn't involved as much as, as maybe uh, she would have been in, in some of our storytelling, but uh, yeah. But it struck you, right? Like, did it strike you? Is that something you thought about? I, I didn't actually, I, I was surprised a little bit that the mom was in there and his kids weren't until the last episode, but I, I didn't, ex I, I don't know. I didn't really expect it. Like it, it was, it was a story about him and his teammates and the competitiveness and, and I, I don't know. Um, I, I was not caught off guard by that. And, but again, I would go back to my expectation for him would be that he lives a drastically different life than, than a normal human. So, but you know, exactly things like that. Context, in the context of the fact that his father was such a massive influence, right? that there was a family member that was a massive influence and someone probably that, that, you know, crafted the narrative of, of his competitiveness. One, I, it just struck me as odd that there was no portrayal of a partner, you know, that, that I think for you guys as players in the context, you know, we're all, uh, you know, our, our, we have partners in the process and I know every one of you has, they have been part of your decision-making process to play for the seals 
to continue to play lacrosse, to be a part of that. And you don't make that decision without them, regardless of money. Yeah, I kind of remember her being pretty, you know, present throughout his career, and, and you notice that in that relationship. And I'm sure it, it all had to kind of align for him, you know, to be able to have the career that he did, you know, with his family life. But there's also a cost to it, too. I'm sure that when, you know, that, uh, that you know, we, we'll never know. But um, I think he's always been pretty guarded, and I think rightfully so, of kind of opening up that side of things and, um, but yeah, I, I agree. I was intrigued to, to know more, you know, about his family life during that time and, and, uh, you know, how it all fit in, but, um, you know, considering our own, our, all our own personal situations and how much that goes into it. So yeah, it's a good point. I mean, really the only reason I brought it up is because if my wife watches this, I wanted to make sure that I brought it up. So, I get <laughs> for it, so. And I think we got to edit that out too. Well, I think that's the thing Michael has that nobody else in this room has is an ex-wife. And so you never know how that situation's going to play out and uh, how, how much she wanted to participate or how much he wanted her to participate to tell some of those stories. So, Doesn't he have an ex-wife? Yeah, he, his longtime wife when he played, they're divorced yeah. and remarried. So, yeah. Uh, when you have, when, like you said, Steve, when you have uh, creative control and control over the edit – uh, you know, that might not be the person you want featured in, in your special documentary. So there you go. How, but, how about his bloodshot eyes? I mean, come on, does he have a kidney problem or what, what's going on with that? He's got glaucoma. Come on. He won't talk <laughs> about it. He, he didn't want talk to talk about it. I always saw him as like this, this like kind of beacon of health and everything and throughout his career. And now he's got the big whiskey, like how big was that whiskey? <laughs> And you can see the levels kind of going up and down. <laughs> I have no problem with that. <laughs> just, it was, I just, yeah, I just saw him in a different light, for sure. A quick break. This episode is sponsored by Manscaped.com. Manscaped is the only men's brand dedicated to below-the-waist grooming and hygiene. If you've been listening to our channel for a while, you know that we are big fans of Manscaped and their Perfect Package Essentials Kit, which is the world's finest all-in-one manscaping kit that makes manscaping safe and easy. And just when you think they've got it all figured out, they take it to the next level. I'm excited to be one of the first to confirm that after 18-plus months of research and development, the new Lawnmower 3.0 Waterproof Body Trimmer has just been released and comes with a ton of new upgrades. Get 20% off plus free shipping from your Perfect Package 3.0 purchase when you use promo code SEALS20 at manscaped.com. That's code SEALS20 for 20% off at manscaped.com. Now, back to the pod. I kind of want to touch on something that Steve said and Bucky said. And, you know, Bucky said that Sean Evans uh, was a bit of an asshole. And I think one of the words everybody heard a lot throughout this series was a trigger word and bully and that Michael had to bully his teammates in his words to push them to the level to be that great. Now they had success that almost nobody in the modern era of sports has had outside of possibly Wayne Gretzky and the Edmonton run and then so on. But did it take that level of bully asshole? He didn't care. He didn't need his teammates to be his friend. He didn't, he literally said he had to sacrifice that part of his life because winning was that important. Do you think he's the outlier and that's why he had that amount of success because he was willing to push his teammates that hard and not be their friend? And has that made you even consider how you might lead or be a teammate to achieve that type of success? 
Well, hey, I'll start. But my basketball is a different sport, obviously, than lacrosse or hockey from a team perspective or even football. Like, he had the ability to influence the outcome of games almost single-handedly. When he was literally playing 45 of 48 minutes, he was on every play, you know, for offensive guys like Bucky or Zach to have influence over a national lacrosse league game of that magnitude at that amount of time. Um, you know, it's, it's almost physically impossible. So he, you could stand to bully opponents and you could stand to bully your teammates because part of that bullying process is you had the ball. Um, and, and I get partly he was a bully, but ultimately he also knew when to hit the release button, right? When to hit Kerr for the shot because he was getting double teamed, um, you know. And so preparing guys for their own success, I, I thought was, was another compelling point of the, of the story. Yeah, I think, I think it's, a, it's a weird dynamic. Like if you're looking at his schedule and how much he's seeing his teammates, I thought it was an interesting approach because he's got to, that's got to be a natural thing for him, right? Like that's clearly who he is as a person um, at all times, right? We're with our teammates, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, let's just call it. And during those times, you know, we have some gaps in between when we see each other. And for us to, to be like that, it would have to be natural, but it'd be certainly different because you wouldn't see your guys throughout the week. So for him, that just came off through his competitiveness. All he cared about was one thing. And, and whether, again, that was cars, that was golf, that was whatever, that was just who he was. Um, I don't think you can change to be like that. I think that's who you are. Um, so I don't know if you can even pull a little bit of that out because like you guys were talking about earlier, it's not authentic and that's not who you are and that's not a leader. So in that respect, you're not going to get anything out of your teammates, which leads to then being a, a you know, six-time NBA champion. So I'm not sure, you know, again, I'm, I'm kind of talking in circles there, but I'm not sure that that lines up to pull anything out of that in order to be a leader like that. And I think something Steve said that was interesting was that you got a room full of Canadians and the small amount of time I've been around Canadians, it's hard to imagine, you know, any of you guys treating people that way. And I think, you know, plug your ears, Brody, but, you know, we've talked about Brody's leadership abilities and, and legendary capabilities in that sense. And I could never imagine somebody like Brody kind of treating people that way. Um, obviously it's hard to argue with, with his success and it is apples to oranges league to league, but it's just so interesting to see that type of leadership style. I think it varies by the person, um, and it's different leadership styles too, I guess. And, uh, so for instance, like this year, Brody was living down here and I'll use his leadership as verbal and nonverbal, um, very much a nonverbal leader. Um, I was out there training with him and he wasn't bullying by any means. And I was like, all right, workout's done. And he just steps up. He goes, no, it's not. We got footwork. And so then I was like, all right, shit, I guess I got to go run. And um, I thought I was already cash. And then we did footwork for 15 minutes. And then I went and sat down, started drinking water, get ready to leave. And then he starts setting up another damn drill. And I'm like, oh, shit. So like, that's a kind of leader where he was bringing the most out of me because we shared that level of competition. And he was like, Hey buddy, like we're not done. Like we got more to do. So like I said, I think there's different ways you can kind of get that out of people. And that's how Jordan ultimately tried to do it. But sometimes leadership, you know, like sometimes he's just trying to be funny. You know what I mean? It's, it's not, he's not trying to lead in some cases. Like, 
you talk you know, John Grant Jr. and Cam yeah. earlier, like Jr. Jr. wasn't necessarily a, a leader per se. He was a great player, and he he did things on the floor that would exude leadership because he was trying to win. But ultimately, off the floor, when he threw a toxic chirp, you know what? He was just simply trying to be a funny guy. And and some of what was portrayed by Jordan was, you know what? Maybe he was just lightening it up a bit. Not everything can be read into, wow, you're a massive leader. Sometimes there's just a lapse in judgment. You're trying to be funny, and it sometimes backfires. I have that problem myself. <laughs> I think you're spot on with saying that about Junior, because I was going to mention that here, too. Is like That's exactly how Junior was, and he would run his mouth to you, and he just had a, a level of confidence within himself that he could say those things and then back up, back it up. So I, I think he's a good example, too. Yeah, yeah I mean, culture. go ahead, Patty. Go ahead. Go ahead, Zach. No, I was just going to say make the, the culture, you know, piece of it, right? Like we mentioned the difference between hockey and lacrosse, but like basketball is a much different culture, um, come from a much different place. Um, a lot of times different upbringing, different demographics, all of that stuff. And so I think that might, you know, play a little bit of it as well. You see that in football a lot, right? Like particularly down here, uh, whether it's the, the wide receivers and the DBs, you know, going at it or, you know, guys fighting with their quarterback and stuff. It's just the kind of a different structure and a different culture that they live in. And that's the way the sport um, is played from, you know, youth through high school up into the, the next level. So I think that might impact it. And then the other thing I was going to say was what Steve mentioned is, you know, his ability to control a game. And in that sense, it almost is a lot closer to an individual sport where, you know, he knows that the people around him are, are a piece of the puzzle and you make the, the comparison to Tiger Woods, right? You got to have a, a caddy and you got to have a trainer and all of this stuff. Um, and Tiger, you know, treated people the same way for, for a lot of his careers, as far as I can tell. Um, but ultimately, Michael's in control. And, and, and the other thing that he said that I thought was interesting at the end was he never asked anybody to do something that he wasn't going to do himself. And so when you are going to carry yourself that way, you are going to put in the extra work and go above and beyond. Then, you know, he felt like he had the ability to, to push guys more and in different ways than, than somebody else would if they weren't putting in the same time and energy that he was. Did you guys find it interesting? And this is for those people out there that are watching this and don't spend much time in a, in a, in a locker room or in, in an NLL locker room. Did you guys find – I thought it was really intriguing how he's sitting there giving out tickets to games. I, I thought that was, like, really interesting how he was kind of the, the banker, if you will, on who got tickets and who didn't. I thought he was hanging in that, that one room uh, with, like, Ahmad Rashad and, like, his security. And the one that was, like, two, two hours before game seven. Where you, yeah. Um, I, I thought – that was fun. but I mean he's so I think it's like he's so unique that it's it's hard to um it's hard to compare right like it's you see little snapshots of it you know I'm sure everybody has of, of different people throughout their career with it but it's um yeah it's tough to compare anybody to him that way Brody you throughout your career I'm sure you've come across every different type of player as a leader, have you ever felt the need to, I'm not going to say bully, but maybe have an intimidating presence to push somebody? Maybe you see greatness in somebody and they're not at that point in their career willing to sacrifice or work hard enough to be that good. Like, have you had to really kind of 
take it to another level to push a player to be what you think they could be? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's um, you got to be yourself with it. Like, I, I don't think I quite had it, you know, like the, in, in the same in the same way. But it's, um, you know, yeah, you're just trying to, um, you know, I think Patrick had said it, you know, like leadership has a price to it, too. Right. And sometimes you have to, you know, like um, the, the team comes first and have a, the team standards come first right so it, it sometimes it could come in the form of like uh you know most times it's conversations you know like in the in, during the in-between times um and then sometimes it can come through like you know just for the moment and more like during during a practice or, or in, in the heat of the moment of a game but um I think that's just it is just trying to stay true to who you are and try to uphold the standard of the team and what you're trying to accomplish. Not, not that this has anything to do with basketball, but in the context of Brody, you know, and leadership and influence, you know, I kept talking about the TFL podcast and the joke was, I'm going to do the TFL. I'm going to do this TFL thing. And Brody goes, he just kind of offhandedly one day said to me and Brody, I don't know if you remember this, but he just kind of said, and this is when you were living here, but, but turned around and said, you keep talking about it. When are you going to do it? And I kind of went, okay, I guess I got, you know, so it wasn't so much leadership and it was an influential comment that was kind of like, wasn't meant as a dig. It wasn't meant as anything else. It was just merely something that made me think and spurred me to kind of do something that I might not have otherwise done. And that's a great thing about being in lacrosse. Like you think of it on, on our team and even this, we, we actually talked about it as a team earlier this year, just different moments and you're feeding off, off different leadership styles within the room, right? Where um, everybody has those little, it, it's, it's a good feeling, you know, when you have somebody in your corner that can be honest with you and you have that relationship with, um, I think that's a, a, a cool thing. I think also for Michael, it was a, you know, obviously basketball and the basketball court in the locker room was his sanctuary, right? Where, um, you know, yeah, I think he did. I think it's a combination of things. I think he did understand the cost or price that he needed to pay to take that next step and be a winner. Um, and I think he realized that through the tough losses that he had earlier in, in his career. I, I do think he, you know, he understood the cost of, of what it takes to kind of be a leader, you know, and, and uh, not asking guys to do things that you weren't willing to do and, and, and all that type of stuff. But I also think that, you know, I mean, I think that's what he enjoyed the most about it. I think he loved interacting with his teammates that way. I, I, think, he, I think it got him to a certain level as well in terms of motivating him to be the best that he could be and, uh, and getting up for every game and that sort of thing. And, and I think he also just liked, maybe just liked the banter. Like I, I watched those episodes. I was a couple of days after they were they were released, and I was on Twitter, and guys were saying, "Oh man, he's a bully. He's this and that." And I was like, I, honestly, I was expecting a lot worse when I actually watched the episode. I, I was like, "What what are you talking about? You know, that's bullying. That's bullying. Like that. You know, walk in any NLL just, locker room at any given time. Right. Yeah, they're, they're just having a good time, right? They're they're in their comfort zone." 
Another quick break. Coronado Brewing Company is proud to be the official craft beer partner of the Seals. Enjoy fan favorite Orange Avenue Wit and their new Salty Crew Blonde Ale all season long and visit coronadobrewing.com to find their award-winning beers near you. Stay coastal. Cheers. I have a quick question. So, Kyle, the media attention that Michael Jordan was getting everywhere he went, it's kind of like when Zach Greer walks out of a locker room, right, and everybody's all over him, good-looking guy. Everybody wants to be Zach Greer, right? It's kind of like that, right? It's identical. It's identical. I try at the same time so I can scoot by him, and uh, they always want a piece of 88. I know that. Kind of always out the back locker room you're talking about. Is that what he calls him? He's a man rocket. (laughs) God, he's got a crush on him. (laughs) Good stuff. I think one of the people that came through really well on this series was Phil Jackson. And everybody in this room coaches or has coached on some level, I think. And uh, he's probably one of the more unique coaches in sport in the way that he handled players and personalities and the way he motivated. Uh, curious what you maybe took away from that. And Patrick, we'll start with you since you're the, the highest level head coach right now. Well, I, I think, um, you know, obviously, you know, he was perfect for that group. I think Cam was mentioning it earlier where he really understood uh, all of his kind of key guys and, and, and all the individual personalities on his team. And he was able to kind of push the right buttons accordingly. Um, you know, and I also think that like, it was obviously clear that Michael was the alpha, um, in the room, um, in the arena and, and that he, you know, he didn't need to be, so he could be kind of more of a, a softer touch. But, um, you know, I actually really like, I really enjoyed, learning kind of how you know how he taught Michael to use his teammates and use the other role players around him I found that really uh really intriguing and and interesting you know the triangle offense and his assistant coach texts and all that stuff I found that really cool I also found it really cool because I'm sure it wasn't being done by anyone else during that time where um you know he was using his zen kind of mindfulness um, um, tactics or whatever you want to call them or, or practices. And, and I, I, you know, I, I found like it was a really good centering point for, for all the guys. But I think more than anything, he was relatable to all the different type of personalities, right, from Michael all the way down the roster. And that, that's not easy to do. I think he was a genius in that way. So in the context of the greatness of Phil Jackson – he goes on – he's the only guy in the cast of characters from that show that goes on to replicate that success with the same level of ego with guys like Kobe and Shaq, right, and, and a number of role players in that, in that world. Um, but none of those other guys – and, again, they age out and they get older as pro athletes, but, you know, never with the level of success um, after that era – Phil Jackson replicates it. So his greatness is kind of memorialized in, in doing this at a lot of levels. Yeah. I mean, I think he also tried to find a team in the Lakers thereafter that he could, you know, that, that was a good fit for him. I think part of his reluctance to go back to, to Chicago again for one more year, even, even though he was offered the opportunity, obviously pride is one thing because, he was basically fired before that season even started, and he knew it. But 
Uh, I think it was also he didn't want to be a part of a rebuild. I don't think he was confident. You know, I don't think that was the type of team that he wanted to be wanted to coach. I think he wanted to find another veteran group that that he could, you know, that he could manage the way he knew how. I think that was an important part of it. But um, I, I also think he found the right situation for him that next phase of his career. I like what he came from, right? He he didn't show up with a massive pedigree. I uh, forget his coaching specifics, but right, smaller schools and uh, started as the assistant coach before getting bumped up. So it wasn't like he came from winning multiple national championships or uh, NBA titles elsewhere. He, he really did it from the ground up. And so uh, to be able to go from where he started to turning into what he turned into is, is, you know, just as impressive as him being able to continue it on later. But um, I really liked his story of progression and, and how he kind of found his way alongside that team and putting the pieces together, like you said, was, was pretty impressive to me. Started coaching in Puerto Rico. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. And yeah. the CBA. Yeah, I really love coaching. Yeah. I, I like the fact that he wasn't like, he, he, he was very, comfortable in his own skin he was, he was like kind of a lighthouse for them he uh and he wasn't uh I don't think he sweat sweated the like in a conventional coaching way he didn't sweat some of the small things you know or um or even like I, it's you know watching it with with uh, Rodman in the playoffs there where he he missed shoot around he's at WWE and you know it was like he, he um I, I think he had a, a you know, maybe a broader perspective on it that uh, he maybe didn't get in his own way. By the way, highly recommend you guys watch the Rodman documentary on Netflix. Um, in comparison, uh, you want to talk about where people come from and the culture uh, that, that they it's It's a fascinating story that is a massive departure from The Last Dance Well, I think one thing that came out of this, one, Jordan wanted to squash the goat talk in basketball as LeBron has really ascended in his career. So I think that was some of the impetus behind this documentary. Uh, I really want to hear each of your takes on the NLL goat. Um, you know, there's, there's obviously, it's an opinion, so there's lots of them. Um, but, you know, let's talk about it. Who is the greatest NLL player of all time? I'm the youngest. I'll kick off here. Um, based on the guys I've played with or played against, um, there's two names that come to mind. One's been said a bunch, and that's John Grant. Um, and the other is John Tavares. And both of them are just so talented and played for so long. Um, and if you go to anybody that's currently in the league, and those are two names that everybody can identify with and has either lost against or, or won with. So um, those are the two big names for me. I guess I'll go next. Uh, I mean, I guess I have to, uh, you know, my first instinct, I was asked recently about that too. And I said, John Tavares myself, I think um, in a couple ways, both summer lacrosse and NLL lacrosse, field lacrosse, whatever. I just thought he was pretty progressive with how he played the game. Um, physicality, finesse, just a bunch of different ways to be successful. Um, you know, I, that's just someone I looked up to when I was young. So um, for me looking at, being able to play against him for a couple of years, that would be the, uh, the goal for me. Yeah, I was going to jump on the Johnny Tavares train as well. If we're talking NLL specifically, I think if you expand it out across the different leagues and, uh, you know, different versions of the sport to field across, I'd, I'd probably go with Gary Gate just on – 
the visibility is creativeness. He, he really did have that influence and impact on the game. You look at a guy like, you know, Bobby Orr and you say that he, he changed the way the sport was played. Uh, I think you can look at Gator the same way. Some of the things he was doing, obviously the air gate in college and some of that stuff, but um, he, he added a level of creativity that just changed the way people think about what was possible on the lacrosse floor. Yeah, I, w I mean, it's his uh, with Tavares. His his longevity was really uh, impressive to me. He played into his mid forties, and and uh, you know was so smart. Had played with such an edge. Um, you know, I wish I'd have seen uh, more of Gary Gate play. I I, I just kind of I came in right as he retired, um, so I didn't get to see as much. I obviously, saw more again across other versions of the game and. And always, you know, I considered him, you know, uh, it's funny because he's always described as a Michael Jordan of, of lacrosse. And, and uh, so those definitely those two stand out. And then you have guys like like John Grant and, and Colin Doyle and, and Josh Sanderson and Jim Beltman. Those are guys that, that uh, come to mind for me. Patty? Yeah, I mean um... – I was kind of the same as Brody. I didn't. I didn't actually get to see Gary play a whole lot when I was when I was younger, um, and when when I was when I played against him, it was only for a, a few years, and it was at the end. But you know, I, I do think obviously just from watching old film, I, think, I like. I mean, again, it's so hard to pick pick one guy because there, you know, you, all the names that you mentioned, I think you can make a case for already, but. I like guys that can kind of do it all. And I feel like Gary and Paul were like that, you know, and Steve, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I feel like they were like that, you know, during their prime years where they could do anything. They can be in any type of way that you could think of, you know, they were, they're big, they're athletic. They can, they're great sticks. They can, they could, they can beat you in so many different ways. And um, two players from my, from my generation that I think, you know, kind of fit that bill are, our Jim Veltman, just the way he thought the game, two steps ahead of everybody else. I felt like that was very impressive, you know, and, and as an older guy, when I was playing with him, he still was kind of like Michael, and, but by example, where he would, he would win all the sprints. He was, he was thinking creatively at practice. He was, he was always just, again, just mentally a few steps ahead of everybody. And you could play him on any – position on the floor and he was going to find a way to be successful so you could put him on he was on our power play he was he was on our short man team he was on the loose ball team you know he could do you know all those things and and obviously I'm a bit biased here the other one I think the only other player that I've seen that can do um that many things uh all in one player is is Brody and you had to, you had the toughness element to that too so um you know, where again, that to me, when you think about the best player of all time, I think I think it's it's the impact that you make on the game, and a lot of guys can score really well, a lot of guys can defend really well, or pick up loose balls, or beat guys up, or whatever the case may be. But to me, the guys that can do all those things really well are, are the ones that should be in that category. Wow! So I'll bring it home, and and so many thoughts kind of come to mind in this conversation and, and it, what, what's really difficult uh, for me is, is kind of, I've, I've always looked at it like there, in terms of lacrosse, there was never a greatest um, 
it was more like who's on the Mount Rushmore uh, for lacrosse. And, and you, you know, you, you pick, I picked five guys uh, to put on the list. Gary and Paul were always, you know, at the top of my list because obviously I played with them and they're Western Canadian guys. I'm, a, I'm the only Western Canadian guy here. So, um, but that notwithstanding, JT is on that list. Jimmy Veltman, Darius Kilgore, and Dallas Elliott were the guys that I always put up on that list of, of Mount Rushmore as, as kind of the five runners and, and a goalie. Um, but really, I thought the NLL did a really interesting thing last week where they they created the, a simulation of, a, of an, a, a video game and put guys on the cover. And they had Gary Gate as the icon edition, and they had John Tavares as the goat edition. So I thought that was an intriguing, um, interesting um, play. And they, and they used Junior, I think, the legend and – so it, it was it was a really interesting thing. I probably would put Gary on this list, and and for one reason, um, over JT longevity. Obviously, JT played the game, and he played the game similar to Gretzky, where he didn't get hit. I mean, you could never hit him. He was a ghost, and and he was always that type of guy that was in the right place at the right time, and and finished and did all the things. But he was really good on the offensive end of the floor, obviously the best and, and longevity played and, and certainly can't be disputed. He's on my podcast tomorrow, so I got to suck up to him. But um, Gary was on it last week for those of you that want to go back and listen to that one. So shameless plug. Um, but I'll tell you, Gary Gate was an unbelievable defender. And I did say that um, when I spoke to him last week, the level of his defense was amazing. And so when you talked about domination on the front, door and the back door playing defense as as those of you know we used to play both ways in this game and it wasn't as specialized as it is today you know know, conceptually Gary played out in the defensive end and was as dominant as a defender as he was in the offensive end and I don't think that can be said for John Tavares as much as I, I believe he's an excellent unbelievable player Gary was dominant as a defender as much as he was in the offensive end and in transition and all the rest so I would only say as the game changed, many of you young guys only got to see them play at one end. Um, I certainly don't even want to talk about junior playing defense. So, you know, I think that probably wouldn't be the case. You know, I think Brody, obviously, if he played more offense, like he, like, you know, if we could just have him shooting from his own end into the empty net every game, I'd be thrilled with that too. And, you know, we'll take that, the long bounce shot in the top corner. Uh, But look, I, I, I'm biased. I think Gary is that player just because of what he could do at both ends of the floor. So, um, you know, hey, it is what it is. I, I want to thank all you guys for doing this and spending the time. Uh, Mike Grace for obviously keeping the, keeping the game flowing. Um, great job by you. But, fellas, great, great conversation. Certainly appreciate uh, the last dance and having 10 hours of programming for us to – got to watch for, for five weeks and look forward to Sunday nights. I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to do next week. Um, maybe we should, Mike, start playing the TFL podcast Sunday nights and people can start paying attention to that. Um, anyway, I'm kidding. But, look, thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Any last thoughts? Very compelling content. Thank you so much. I appreciate your contribution there. This was a lot of fun. We appreciate being on. Yeah.
Yeah, especially with the popularity of this podcast, I think you uh, there was there was the last dance, and then there was uh, the Prez cooking show and the TFL podcast. I think we're right right there neck and neck in terms of popularity on the internet. Make a comeback! I just as you guys know, most of you, I'm in the process of moving, so I'm relocating my kitchen. So TFL kitchen is getting a rebrand. So. Fellas, it's been a pleasure. It's great to talk to you guys, and, and especially about something as meaningful as as bullying and leadership and uh, and all that fun stuff. So, uh, thanks again. Appreciate you doing it, and uh, love you guys. I'll see you soon. Thanks, Steve. See you guys. Thanks, thanks guys. Steve. That was fun, guys. See you, boys.